This is God's word. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Read this far from God's word. We suffer from what I call Christmas amnesia. We forget the story of Christmas and specifically its power. Here's a quick self-test for you. We've forgotten the power of the Christmas story if we've fallen into this false trap of thinking that recent tragedies can dampen Christmas. For example, if you had a recent death in your family, would it ruin Christmas? No, because if we believe that, we've failed our self-test and forgotten the power of Christ's coming. If we were to look under the Christmas tree and living rooms of those families that did lose a loved one this past week, and we were to see unopened gifts there with their names on it, it would pull at our heartstrings and we would get sad, of course. But Matthew in this passage draws our attention away from looking under a modern Christmas tree and instead to look again under another ancient tree, to look under the tree of Calvary and see the blood of Jesus spilled so that we can live forever. Let me remind you of the Christmas story tonight. As we find it in the Gospel of Matthew, the history of the coming of Jesus into the world began with a slaughter of innocent babies, Matthew chapter 2. It continues as you progress through the Gospel of Matthew with the slaughter of the innocent John the Baptist, chapter 11. And it ends with the slaughter of the innocent one himself, in the end, the Lord Jesus Christ, in chapter 27. Of course, he rose again, which gives us the power of the Christmas story that God has victory, and yet God, in this passage, sympathizes with victims. I'm not minimizing anyone's pain or experience. God also judges 
the agents of violence. It's God's world, and all must give account to him. So God gives us these perspectives as we study the Christmas story. The true Christmas story is impervious to tragedy. Christmas is the answer to tragedy for every Christian because of the presence of Christ engulfs and redefines our tragedies. What's, what's the promise of protection that's offered here? It's a forever promise. We do not judge forever by contemporary events, whatever might have happened recently. We judge forever by God's actions, God's actions in this manger, God's actions in the pathway of the holy family, as we call them, Joseph and Mary and Jesus, down to Egypt and then back again, on the pathway of Jesus to the cross and to the empty tomb. So our main point tonight is this. Our Father in heaven fulfills what he promised in protecting his children through the coming of his Son. For what things can we trust God? For salvation, through the coming of his Son, for fulfillment of God's good intentions and the coming of his Son, despite the bad intentions of men, and for ongoing protection for all his children. First, salvation through the coming of his Son. Consider the activity of the angels in our passage. Angels were very busy at the time of Christ's birth, as we know from the Gospel of Luke, over in Luke. It was angels who announced the coming of Jesus to the shepherds. As we know from tonight's passage, the Gospel of Mark, or I'm sorry, Matthew, there were assignments for angels in helping Joseph to protect the baby Jesus. In verse 12, we're told that Joseph and his little family, often stated here, the child and his mother, Mary, were on the run from Herod's murderous plot. In verse 13 is where the angels speak up. Verse 13, Joseph heard the angel when the angel said, flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. I love how this phrase is put in the New King James Version Bible. Stay there until I bring you word. The protection of God through his angel and through his providence over Joseph was given these specific instructions and parameters until I bring you word. Stay there where you're safe. So Joseph must wait for the Lord's word before he would make a move. And sure enough, in verse 14, the godly man Joseph, as we've been studying, it doesn't surprise us that he obeys specifically and did exactly as the angel told him to do. He stayed there until the angel would later come and bring him word. Safety comes in waiting until the marching orders from God. God's greater purpose is also revealed in this. To give us salvation and safety in his son, is it not the whole purpose of the Gospel of Matthew? To announce to us the safety, the ultimate safety that we have in this way by this Savior, this Son of God coming. Consider the teaching of Jesus over in Matthew 10, verse 29, where our Lord Jesus himself said, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your Father. You are worth more than many sparrows. Matthew 10, 29. Again, highlighting the lesson of God's promise to protect us to protect us. A poet wrote about knowing that God desires our salvation and safety and wrote this, Lord, I crawled across the barrenness to you with my empty cup, uncertain in asking any small drop of refreshment. If only I had known you better, I would have come running with a bucket. The announcement of God's Son coming into the world is a reminder of God's promise to protect us 
his salvation, chief of all. We move to our second point, verses 15 to 18. We can also trust God for fulfillment of his good intentions in the coming of his son, despite the bad intentions of men. Verse 15, we know that Joseph remained where the angel told him to remain. We've covered that from verse 14 into now verse 15. And that continued until the threat was gone when Herod died. Why was Joseph in Egypt with Jesus? It's a miniature of what we've been studying. Those in this church have been studying Jeremiah to go to exile and back. Jesus goes to Egypt and back. And to fulfill also the prophecy that's literally listed here in Hosea 11 verse 1. And it's in our passage in verse 15. The Lord did what was to fulfill, was spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. But back to the time of Herod now in verse 16. How did Herod react when instead of tricking the wise men, as we studied this morning, the wise men tricked Herod and didn't come back and tell him where Jesus was so that he could supposedly worship Jesus? Herod was tricked. What's his reaction? Herod is furious, verse 16 tells us. Herod was murderously furious. Herod sent an order that killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all that region who were two years old and under because that was the time frame the wise men had revealed for the birth of the Christ child that could be. It seems to me most likely that Jesus would have been just a few months old and and for Herod, in order to make sure that Jesus would be killed in this order, raised the number of children to be killed all the way up to those two years old in order to ensure that Jesus, perhaps a two- to three-month-old, would be killed in the order. But that didn't happen. It didn't fall out according to Herod's order. He sent an order that killed them because of the time frame the wise men had revealed for the birth of the Christ child. But in verses 17 and 18, here Matthew gives us another quotation from the Old Testament, this time using Jeremiah 31, verse 15, of Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they were no more. Just a brief reminder of who this is and what this means. Rachel was the wife of Jacob, the great patriarch, third in line after Abraham. Abraham, Isaac, uh, Jacob. In Genesis 35, 19, we read that Rachel was buried near Bethlehem, which is where these children were later being slaughtered. Now, Jeremiah, when he wrote these lines about Rachel weeping, was writing primarily of Jerusalem, being led into captivity, leaving the land where Rachel lay buried. So in this figure of speech, Jeremiah equated the name of the patriarch's wife, Rachel, with the land of God's promise. So for the Old Testament writer, Jeremiah, Rachel personified the land, and so the picture was Rachel, or all the people of God weeping for the children who should remain in their homeland but cannot because they're being taken away as slaves. That ancient picture of Jeremiah for the people going into exile is aptly taken now here by Matthew to apply to those who are grieving because their children were being killed. And here the New Testament writer Matthew borrows the image of Rachel weeping for her children quite appropriately, also known as Jacob's children or Israel's children. And Matthew applies the image to this 
contemporary attack at that time. Isn't it fitting? Because it's grief and hopelessness. Hopelessness in one lifetime feels a lot like hopelessness in other lifetimes of world history, whenever and wherever it's found. It sounds familiar to Rachel, to Matthew, to Jeremiah. There was hopelessness in Bethlehem. Again, because of Herod's order, her Bethlehem's hope for her future died when her children were killed. And God, in fulfillment of his good intentions for these very children, the exact children who were slaughtered, led Joseph and Mary and the child Jesus in an escape out of there, out of Bethlehem, that the answer to the hopelessness is to turn to God and to trust in God's plan and God's good intentions. God's plan always overpowers the intentions brought on by man's evil plans. You could ask, why didn't God save all the baby boys? Wait. Let's not lose perspective on what Matthew is showing us because it's not the focus of the passage. Let's not focus on the death of these exact baby boys, but rather focus on what God is doing in the big picture through his son. Despite the bad actions of men like Herod and the next Herod, and later a man named Pontius Pilate, God was fulfilling an intricate plan that did in fact end up saving all the children of Israel and all the ages who believe in Christ. Let's not get stuck with a proper, understandable pity for these boys and their mothers and fathers and families. Instead, let's put pity where pity belongs, on Herod. As always, when it comes to an attack on God's people, we recognize that God, God's good intentions are always carried out to bless his people and judge his enemies. Why didn't God physically save the baby boys in Bethlehem? Because God had better plans than we can imagine, than we could ask, than we could think for those baby boys and their parents and for all of God's people down to us. Paul summarizes in one phrase in Romans 8.31, If God is for us, who can be against us? We don't weep for the children of God who are under attack because God can raise the dead, because God can protect his people. Instead, we weep for the attackers. I would hate to be them attacking God and his children after Jesus had been arrested, after he'd been tried and beaten and was being led away to crucifixion. It was in that moment that Jesus turned to unbelieving women wailing for him as the object of persecution. And Jesus said to them in Luke 23, 28, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. Luke 23, 28. Jesus is saying he's victorious because he's the Son of God. 
because of the victory of the Son of God, there's no need to weep for him or for any of God's children, ultimately, that God's good intentions can reverse death and wipe away every tear from every eye. God's power secures his good intentions for us. And this is the larger picture of what we must trust in from this passage. We can trust God fully, despite difficult things to read, such as Matthew points out to us the action in verse 16, the fulfillment of a passage in verse 17, and the quotation of the passage in verse 18. We can trust God fully despite what attacks people bring against us. Founder of the OPC, Dr. J. Gresham Machen, wrote it this way, Has it never dawned on us that God is valuable for his own sake? If we value God for his own sake, then the loss of other things will draw us all the closer to him. So the point there was the fulfillment of God's intentions and the coming of his son despite bad intentions of men. We move to our third point for ongoing protection for all his children through the coming of his son. This is one, one more thing that we can trust God for. Verse 19, we now fast forward again to that moment when Herod would die. And at that time it would become safe for Joseph to take the Christ child Jesus up out of Egypt. And so the Lord's angel again appeared in a dream and gave instructions again to Joseph. This time it was the opposite. Verse 20, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. Verse 21, Joseph obeyed. Verse 22, Joseph feared going to Judea. There's good reason for Joseph to be fearful in Galilee. After, I'm sorry, fearful in Judea. After Herod's death, Herod's kingdom was split up into three parts. The new ruler over Galilee was Archelaus, who began his reign by slaughtering 3,000 influential people. So another warning came and another dream to go to Galilee. Verse 23, we're told that this was how Jesus ended up in Nazareth, so that Jesus could be called a Nazarene. God equipped Joseph all along the way with angel appearances, statements from God through an angel, with everything that Joseph needed to take care of God's son. Joseph had the required integrity, piety, and wisdom. And God... Saving Jesus until later saved us. For God to rescue Jesus then is for God to rescue us when Jesus died and rose again for us. Our Father in heaven fulfills what he promised in protecting his children through the coming of his son. Three application points to us. Number one, reorient your weeping according to the coming of Jesus. We've been told to adjust our rejoicing, right? Rejoice, joy to the world. We keep getting told that message about our rejoicing. But the opposite is also true. What about our weeping? What causes you to weep? Are you weeping for the right things? It changes as we grow and understand God better. We reorient our weeping. We stop weeping for believers who die. We weep because we miss them, and grief is proper, healthy, holy, and good. But we don't weep for them. We're comforted by the Son of God, whose blood was shed for us to have an eternity to see our brothers and sisters again. So what's left to weep for? If we reorient our weeping, what should we weep for? At such intensity that, as verse 18 says, we refuse to be comforted. 
Well, we weep for Herod and those like him. We weep for those who do not bow to our Lord Jesus or trust in him. We weep for those who must stand at his judgment seat. One application from this passage is to reorient our weeping according to Christmas priorities. Second application is to trust in our Father. You heard it all throughout. Trusting him, trusting him. His promise of protection stands. God is on the throne. He has a plan. He's executing that plan and implementing exactly what he wants to do. He knows what he's doing. He did not slip up. We don't bring God into our court of judgment and question why God does things the way he does. For example, the question that seems to come across the surface of the passage which we just dealt with. Why these baby boys died, for example. Instead, we bring ourselves into God's realm of promises made and promises kept. We're never going to figure out God's full plans. Instead, our role is to trust in him when things seem to go haywire, especially to trust in him. Also, even on a seeming normal day, when nothing is going haywire, God will not always do what we're expecting. We have to learn to stop living by our own set of expectations and start living according to pure trust. God does not follow our assumed outcomes. Our God does not comfortably predictable to us. So we trust and rest in his care even when we're not informed about what God is doing, why God is doing, what he's doing, how he's doing it, his timing. We're not informed about those things and yet we trust in him. And here's the thing to consider. If we only rest in God's care and promises when we understand, there will be way too many times when we don't rest at all because there's so many times that we don't understand. We have to learn as God's children to rest in his promises and care even when it is as shocking as having all of Bethlehem's boys extinguished. It's shocking. It's hard to absorb this. While that was happening, God the Father was rescuing Jesus so that Jesus would rescue us. The lesson is so clear in this passage. Trusting in God the Father because his promise of protection stands. And the third and last application, remember this very Jesus who came the first Christmas is the same Jesus who's coming again in power and great glory. As we anticipate the first Christmas and walk through the prophets saying this and watching the people of God of the Old Testament anticipating and looking forward to the coming of Jesus at the first Christmas, the lesson for us now is to look ahead in those ways for the second coming, the last coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, don't suffer from Christmas amnesia. Remember that Jesus came, he conquered, and he's coming again. We have already the final victory over evil and sin and death and the slaughters of the innocent ones that all the evil men and women have been able to deal out in all the history of the world. But don't worry. Every single one of those crimes, every single one of them, will be set right by God himself. 
all things will be dealt with in such a thorough and satisfying way of justice and holiness and righteousness that all of us will be in full agreement with God's actions and all of us will have our mouths drop open with awe at how God sews up the end of the story at the end of history. We are living still in the story. We can't see the end. You're here tonight to celebrate Christmas, the arrival of our hero of our story. And that's stage one there, his first coming. And stage two is his second coming. And so we're still in the story. May the world never cease to celebrate Christmas annually in order to give proper homage, the best we can, to the one who came for us and the one who's coming back for us. But that last chapter of the Christmas story, that last chapter of human history is not yet written. God will write that last chapter, and that's the forever chapter. The only thing standing between our lives now and that forever chapter is that momentary time when the Lord Jesus Christ will come again. The coming of Jesus, the second coming, that is. All we need to remember is this one simple truth, very simple. It's three words, I'll say it three times. It's really what you're supposed to take away from a full study of Christmas, a full enjoyment of life in a violent world. One simple truth, three words, three times. Ready? Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. And to close, let me read the last two stanzas of our last Christmas carol that we'll sing this Christmas tonight. Holy Jesus, every day keep us in the narrow way, and when earthly things are past, bring our ransomed souls at last, where they need no star to guide, where no clouds thy glory hide. In the heavenly country bright, need they no created light, thou its light, its joy, its crown, thou its sun which goes not down. There forever may we sing alleluias to our King.